1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I am your host, Aparna Gopalan, and today we will be talking about the new book, Financializing Poverty, Labor and Risk in Indian Microfinance, which came out with Stanford University Press in July 2018. The book was written by Professor Sohini Kar, Assistant Professor of International Development at the London School of Economics. Is microfinance the magic bullet that will end global poverty, or is it yet another form of predatory lending to the poor? Kar brings ethnography to bear on this urgent question. Drawing on fieldwork with a for-profit microfinance institution and its intended beneficiaries in the Indian city of Kolkata, the book brings into view the perils of financial inclusion for the poor. Kar argues that new streams of credit are increasingly used to capitalize on poverty rather than to challenge it. Richly peopled, the book evinces a deep commitment to understanding economic life as it is lived and experienced by everyday people, rather than through abstract models. In the book, we meet founders of microfinance institutions remaking themselves with narratives of social business, loan officers trying to balance the performance of care with the pressures of debt recovery, poor women taking out consumption loans and striving for middle-class identities, and debt-ridden borrowers struggling to manage the costs of living and the pressures of repayment. The experiences of this cast of characters are framed within larger histories of debt and power in Kolkata, West Bengal, and India more broadly. Financializing poverty combines theoretical sophistication with clear and engaging prose to shed light on the ways in which profit continues to be made off of poverty. This book will be of interest to readers in the fields of anthropology, economics, and development studies, as well as readers interested in South Asia and global poverty. I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Carr earlier today. Here's my interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Professor Carr, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, as someone who's just beginning to formulate a research project on rural development, which is increasingly structured by microfinance, your book couldn't have been more invaluable. And I'm so excited to have the chance to talk to you today. So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual trajectory and the concerns which brought you to this unique crossroads between anthropology, Kolkata, and microfinance? Sure. Um,
0: so I think there's sort of the... The, the book comes out of my dissertation project um, for my PhD, um, but in some ways my intellectual history is a little bit longer in the sense that I started out my undergraduate during economics, um, and that really is the basis for why I'm interested in economic issues, uh, but one of the things that I found as an undergraduate in economics increasingly into my senior year that it wasn't... Um, offering the kinds of answers or the ways to look at answers I was interested in in terms of development um, economics at that time. And so I really came to anthropology um, in my senior year as an undergraduate at Columbia University um, and realized that I wanted to have something that had field work um, that required me to talk to people and to really engage and understand what was going on in their economic lives rather than sort of sit and model something um, and come up with uh, a solution that looks good on, you know, in a graph, but sort of doesn't make sense to anybody who's familiar with the context. Um, so I went from there to sort of starting out in anthropology. Um, and eventually uh, I started my PhD, uh, master's PhD program at um, Brown University. And um, when I initially started my, my project as doing a master's um, sort of thesis on Um, inflation in marketplaces in India at that time. Um, And so I was, it was a time, it was around 2000, um, I'd say 2008, seven or eight. And there was high rates of inflation. Um, And one of the things I was interested in at the time was how market vendors, these sort of small vendors were managing um, these inflation rates and how their side of the story um, often, A, doesn't get told, um, but also, you know, what do they actually do to manage it? And one of the things I learned was often their, that their credit worlds was what sustained them through these um, times of crisis. So they were getting loans from, um, you know, informal money lenders that were more usual. They had access to microfinance loans through their wives. Um, these were mostly male market vendors at the time. So during this project, I became increasingly interested in sort of alternative credits. Um, where were people from the informal sector seeking credit and what did it mean for them? Um, and around the same time, somewhat uh, fortuitously, I came across this article. It was in the the magazine India today about microfinance as a sort of um, this report from the Boston consulting group had just come out about microfinance in India and the bottom billion in banking. And, um, It was really, you know, it sort of came that those two things sort of came together at the same time to sort of think about how was this sort of, you know, segment that was seen as highly profitable, you know, this cutting edge and sort of the market coming together with the realities of people's lives as they were sort of trying to just make do um, through different kinds of credit. So that sort of pushed me when I was working into my dissertation project um, to think more seriously about commercial microfinance, the sector of microfinance that um, has been relatively understudied in terms of um, both the history of microfinance and its impact in um, urban, uh, certainly in urban India, but also rural India. Yeah, it is one of the large, it was, at least at the time, one of the largest sectors of microfinance. Um, so I think those factors sort of came together to to get me to think a little bit more about what was happening as these sort of different dimensions were were coming together in terms of the financialized aspect, along with sort of people's need for for this uh, alternative source of credit.
1: Great. Um, Definitely the focus on people rather than on graphs came through very powerfully in the book. Um, And I really love that. Um, So getting into the introduction of the book, you begin by talking about the ways in which microfinance enfolds the poor into global financial circuits. Um, And then you go on in later parts of the book to discuss a parallel process in which microfinance itself becomes enfolded in hierarchies and practices which operate in its context of implementation. And I noticed that throughout the book, the verb enfold actually carried a lot of analytical weight for you and did a lot to bring out your argument. Um, so could you say a bit more about the different types of enfolding and how they emerged as central to your project?
0: For me, the word enfold was something that I particularly came to because I wanted to sort of distinguish it from the idea of inclusion, um, because I think within uh, the sort of world of microfinance of um, policies around financial inclusion inclusion has a certain kind of meaning about sort of you know bringing people in but the sort of positive connotation but also a sense of you know agency on the part of people being brought into um, these networks uh, that you know you want to be included that inclusion is sort of a developmental goal Enfolding um, to me does something slightly different because it it brings people in but in a way that's a, quite a bit more complicated than the simple notion of sort of inclusion into finance. Because when they're brought into these financial folds, um, and to me, I do think of it in the sort of unfolding way um, that it, it, the sort of strat for people, it's no longer simply inclusion or I- exclusion. Once you're in and folded into something, um, you know, you're drawn into all of these other networks. Um, so your your loan, for example, becomes part of this larger circuit of global finance in which you as an individual sort of borrower are not just included, you're sort of captured into this um, larger pool of, pool of capital. Um, and I think that this, for me, unfolding sort of captures this dimension that's sort of um, engulfing people into, into these new networks um, in a way that's not simply that they're sort of being included, but they're included at levels at which they're not necessarily sort of aware of. But, you know, in some ways, it doesn't matter um, exactly where those sort of linkages and capital matter to a person getting a loan at that very minute. Uh, At the same time, that sort of act of unfolding means that suddenly, um, you know, the poor, the urban poor that I was working with, that they are suddenly part of this much vaster network Um, of of finance capital. Um, And I think inclusion just misses that sort of um, element. And so I I push for unfolding as to capture this other dimension.
1: It actually came through very powerfully as well, the sort of critique of financial inclusion. Um, And it begins really in your first chapter, when you begin to talk about um, a culture of entrepreneurship Um, as sort of the context within which microfinance is operating. Um, And this culture has everything to do with, you know, being inclusive, because on the one hand, it's sort of pushing for businesses to become more socially inclusive and entrepreneurial. And on the other hand, it's sort of talking to the precarious poor, and asking them to sort of um, become more involved in um, sort of A larger network of entrepreneurship and sort of recoding them as micro entrepreneurs. Um, So, could you say a bit more about the culture of entrepreneurship and how it manifested in in your research?
0: I think, in on the one hand, in microfinance, it's quite, you know, especially on the side of borrowers, that the the goal is to produce all these sort of entrepreneurs. Um, And so, part of you know, I was going into a, whether this was actually happening amongst, amongst the borrowers themselves, um, which I found very quickly was both from the side of sort of the loan officers and the, the borrowers themselves um, was not really the goal of what they were getting the loans for, um, that entrepreneurship sort of was a you know, something that they acknowledged they had to do on a, on a loan application but didn't ever materialize in, in any any real way of how the concept is used, say in business or, um, you know, on the one hand, it's very you know the informal economy is very much part of uh, a lot of the borrowers' lives. They have small businesses, but that I would struggle to call them entrepreneurs in the sense that it's used in in sort of the the literature, um, or the way it's used in sort of developmental sort of projects to sort of create entrepreneurs. So, in some ways, I was interested to see how, why this discourse was so powerful, given that for the people actually getting the loans, it meant very little. Um, And so, pushing from that, what I found was the centrality of this notion really rested at the level of the microfinance institution and the founders who sort of talked about their own kind of entrepreneurial trajectories and the ways in which entrepreneurship sort of became coded as the way in which they set up their institutions, the way in which entrepreneurship was seen to be valorized. So um, <clears throat> in some ways I saw the sort, of, the, the sort of culture of entrepreneurship really built into the, the social business aspect of, of these MFIs um, and how they saw themselves and the kind of stories that um, institutions and businesses tell about themselves, much more than the sort of actual um, borrowers' And so what's interesting is how that language around the MFIs, especially in this commercial sector, um, comes to signify other things. So doing good while doing well, sort of coming out from the the sort of bottom of the pyramid literature, all of these things help to sustain the MFIs and their vision of what they're doing um, much more than, you know, people who are running small businesses. They don't necessarily see much value in this sort of larger um, discourse and yet it's sort of being um, mapped onto them but they're not necessarily the ones at least from what I found to to care very much about it but it does sort of have a very um, you know strong influence in the way in which MFIs are seen how they are um, seen to be regulated what their mission is whether they have you know discourse of sort of mission drift also all of this thing sort of ends up Focusing on the institution rather than the, the actual borrowers.
1: This narrative of sort of, um, sorry, one second. Um, yeah. This narrative of um, um, entrepreneurship is one of the ways in which um, the labor of microfinance is carried out you know, on the ground. And as you show, um, there's many other ways in which microfinance has to be made possible through sort of practiced and social labors. Um, I really appreciated the move to treat microfinance in this embedded way, um, or as you call it, sort of defetishizing the financial product as a pure abstraction, because there definitely is this tendency to sort of see, you know, the world of finance as this set of complex abstractions, which are sort of inaccessible and not produced by everyday practices. So what were some of the most important um, practices and labors which emerged, you know, through your attention to loan officers in particular, and how do they help us understand debt relations under microfinance in a better way.
0: I think I I spent so much of my time going around um, with loan officers that it was hard to miss how much of what they were doing was actually labor. Um, And, you know, they sort of starting at, they live in these um, branch offices at the um, MFIs. Um, They have essentially a day and a half off per week um, and so their lives are very much centered on, you know, their places of work. Um, and they, this day starts at seven o'clock from when they start going out to, to the group meetings they have until about noon. Um, and the, they, they usually just ride their bicycle around, um, the city to go to different places. Um, it, and it is oftentimes quite difficult, um, in, in order to get to these places, uh, I wasn't actually uh, I didn't I was not comfortable enough to ride a bike in, in Kolkata. So um, I had a, a a car to go around um, and it was actually a, a, a treat for the loan officers who I went with on their days to sort of be able to get in the car rather than have to ride their bike around. Um, and and so I thought that was, um, you know, sort of learning about their everyday and the kind of work that they did to sort of manage um, these repayments was something that I felt was really, you know, not often not discussed. And and sometimes in microfinance, when it is discussed, they're often sort of the negative role of the loan officer. Um, And certainly there are times in which you have sort of negative pressures. Um, At the same time, they're, you know, under quite um, limited means in terms of what they can do to sort of do their job. And also, um, you know, they, they face pressures to get those, these repayments from their um, heads and sort of over people overseeing them. So there's, there's quite a set of, um, you know, other power relations that are embedded with, with loan officers. And, um, and so I think I was trying to think through what the sort of negative marking that the loan officers also felt themselves to have partly in relation to thinking about them as, um, you know, they they wanted to not be money lenders. This was a really important part of their um, self identity. Was to say that, you know, we're we're not money lenders. We we work for the bank, um, and in that sense, they they wanted to sort of create a, and cultivate a, a notion of self, a, a notion of, sort of a kind of ethical self um, that was. Uh, in line with what they saw was sort of what they were doing as good. And in that way I think there is a part of the ideology that of the MFI that translates here, which is that they wanted to see that the the work that they were doing was had some kind of value. Um, and so often they would, you know, talk about trying to help people. Um, at the same time they were, you know, at times quite frustrated with the the notion that they they came in to do good, but now they're just in a business that it's sort of undermine their expectations of what they were going to do Um, but now it's it's a little bit sort of off of that and and you know they are part of this process of producing these debts that they um, you know on the one hand form the relational basis for they do see these um, borrowers the women largely um, every week they interact with them they form these bonds um, and relations and then um they are meant to sort of just alienate that um, as part of these sort of commercialized loans and I think that was an interesting sort of moment for me to see how um, people navigated on the one hand a very personal kind of relationship of debt that we have when we interact with a person and sort of get money from someone or repay them um, that these meetings take place within someone's house so you get to really know the intimacy within a household um, and at the same time, when they want to sort of, you know, the the loan officers get moved around every couple months to sort of ta- break these ties, in a sense, to sort of disembed them purposefully. Um, and so borrowers be like, oh, you know, so-and-so said that I could get a loan, but now you're saying you can't. So there's all this sort of confusion over what the relationality meant in the first place. Versus um, what the the MFI wants as these sort of more abstracted relations between borrowers and lenders. Um, So I think that places loan officers in a really complicated place, and um, requires us to think of them not just as sort of you know a cog in a machine who just takes money from one side, passes it on, but that they're deeply sort of um, caught up in these different kinds of relations, but also in their attempt to understand themselves as sort of good you know, doing a good job, being a good person, um, that it, it is often conflicted by these other kinds of expectations.
1: And, you know, despite their best intentions, um, you show that sort of there's ways in which loan officers are imbricated in larger hierarchies, um, which don't just go away because they're part of a microfinance institution. Um, And this comes through in particular when they are assessing the creditworthiness or riskiness of particular borrowers. Um, So you note that risk assessment is not a matter of just crunching numbers. Um, So what else is involved in risk assessment? And what's the sort of larger moral economy of credit within which it's functioning?
0: Um, I think that was one of the things I was really interested in when I was going around um, for these uh, meetings and partly... Again, going in and sort of learning just about the process, I thought with microfinance, you know, you usually hear about just the group method and that it's, um, you know, as long as your other women in the group sort of agree to your loan that you'll get it. But actually what happens is that there's quite a significant set of processes that allow someone to get a loan. So first, um, the, uh, a potential borrower, uh, typically a woman, will have to get, um, fill in a loan application and that takes place within their their house. And so as they're filling in this loan application, um, and I, I, I sort of talk about this in one of the chapters, but the, the actual process of writing down, filling in the form is something that's quite informative because there's certain things that, that get written down, but in the process of sort of ans- asking and ask- answering the questions about the, the loan, about how much, um, you know, what they're ideas of what their expenses are, ideas of what their um, income is. All of this, the the loan officers admitted to me that, you know, they didn't need any kind of real verification. They don't look at documents. They don't ask for sort of, you know, pay stubs or any kind of formal documentation. What they are looking for is whether they can get a sense of whether people understand their sort of financial flows um, and whether they can sort of, you know, get a reasonable, expectation of what that, that household looks like. And so when you look at the final form, it's this very simple sort of, you know, set of um, statements about what it's for, What, but in the process of actually filling it out, they've asked all these other questions, they sort of looked around the house, they've um, made all these other judgments that um, you wouldn't see if you just, you know, went through the archives or sort of looked at what the, the loan officers were looking for, but actually there's a lot more in the in just the process. Um, and so that was one part of the the assessment that I was interested in. The other was just to, you know, because sometimes uh, the branch manager would have to um, finalize the amount that a person was getting for a loan. So, you know, sometimes they'd say, you're getting, someone's going to get 10,000 or somebody had asked for 10,000 rupees and they would say, you know, no, you're going to get 9,000 um and when i asked about you know why is that um the reason in one case was that the well the house looked a little untidy and that told him something about you know what the the sort of creditworthiness of the person was that this sort of signified some kind of class morality um and so there are all these other ways in which people were trying to sort of assess creditworthiness um in another case uh you know the the loan officer um would ask how much? How, uh, he was concerned of a uh, borrower um, that her husband had recently left That he wasn't sure how much money she had in the household, and she'd just gone shopping. And so when he when she came back, he asked her, you know, how many kinds of fish did you buy? And this is, you know, in, in West Bengal, where how much fish you buy and what kind of fish you buy is uh, a big part of people's lives. And she had bought three kinds of fish. And so he was like, okay, there's, you know there's still room in this household for that there's money there because she's buying. And he's, he told me later, well, you know, if there was hardship, then she wouldn't buy that much fish. Um, So they were asking all these other kinds of questions about people's lives about, they had all this knowledge about their, um, you know, intimate sort of relations with their, their husbands, their parents. And um, they, you know, they really, dug into this kind of knowledge to to find out who was and wasn't creditworthy um, so there's it was interesting to see how much of that sort of social valuation was going into um, people's lives
1: how much of this um, sort of social valuation of risk was intersecting with existing um, minority identities in this area so based on um, you know religion or caste or um, yeah any language or sort of various minority identities how did they feature into um the assessment of risk
0: yeah well, that was uh, one of the points i was really struck by um in part in in kolkata there's not as much segregation by say caste within in some neighborhoods but there is significant segregation of um muslim communities and so there are certain neighborhoods that are, um, you know, identified by the the MFIs and the loan officers as being sort of Muslim neighborhoods, and um, they often typified these neighborhoods with certain kinds of um, stereotypes. Um, and so often they would they would complain that these areas were not. Um, that they were they weren't the best borrowers. That they had um, one of the complaints was often that they have very large families, which really doesn't matter for the purposes of of repaying a loan. Um, that there was um, one lo- loan officer always complained about going there because there would be um, beef in the area and um, cattle, and so he he personally hated going there. He felt disgust at the at the thought of it, um, and that these, again, when we think about the ways in which sort of social and cultural forms of valuation go into these assessments of creditworthiness, when you see sort of loan officers sort of deep, certainly a deep kind of resentment of um, that people in that neighborhood, it does translate back into the ways in which they um, think about creditworthiness of those borrowers. Um, And in some ways... um, when, while I was doing field work, there was a, a crisis in the microfinance sector. Um, so there was a, a period in which there was not a lot of money for new loans. And whenever this discussion came up, a lot of the the branch managers, loan officers would be like, oh, we'll just stop giving loans to this area that the Muslim neighborhood, because they didn't want to sort of deal with it. Um, and so there was, a certain amount of tension that sort of featured around the ways that they talked about these neighborhoods um, and in, uh, ironically in some cases people were also much more or the loan officers were aware in some ways of their own biases in one case I had a loan officer who said um, you know we, we have problems in all neighborhoods but when you go to sort of one of these and one person has a problem you sort of identify everybody with it whereas um, in other cases you sort of You know, you don't go to a Hindu majority neighborhood and they certainly face problems there, but they don't sort of assume that's a problem of everybody. And again, this is, you know, a classic way to understand um, stereotyping and of, you know, scapegoating minorities. um, And they came to it on their own, but they also simultaneously sort of understood that they were doing it even as they recognized its sort of problems.
1: So obviously, the sort of central minoritized identity to microfinance is gender. Um, And in your book, you discuss sort of various ways in which the women's empowerment narrative needs to be complicated. And we need to not only see what microfinance does for women, but what women do to microfinance when it sort of comes into their domestic orbits. So could you talk a bit more about, um, you know, gender and class as they played out in this particular context?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, key issues for me was that, again, the notion that, um, you know, because women ha- would have access to microfinance these new loans, that they would be empowered in a certain kind of way. And that's, you know, something that's been looked at by a lot of scholars and sort of a lot of people have examined critically how that, you know, doesn't really happen. Um, and certainly I sort of agree with that. But one of the things that I really was interested in is how much um, work it took on the part of women to actually get these loans that they weren't simply, you know, something that sort of arrived on their doorsteps. Um, they had to, you know, there's, there's a degree of labor that goes along with all kinds of other domestic labor, um, that women perform to actually get a loan. They have to, um, you know, go to these group meetings every day. Um, they often have two or three loans. So it means they're going to at least two or three group meetings every morning, um, to, to repay the loans. Um, this is being managed simultaneously with other kinds of domestic labor, with wage labor, with, um, you know, family businesses. So there's certainly a short of time to sort of make these meetings. Um, they, they have to get different kinds of identification to be able to be eligible. They have to get documents. They have to get a, a mail guarantor as part of the process of getting a loan. Um, and all of these things require effort. Um, in some cases, if, Again, because of this requirement of having a male guarantor, which is a quite qu- counterintuitive to a notion of sort of a program for women's empowerment, um, you know, for women who don't have a male guarantor, it means finding someone who will agree to sort of be a fictive kin to say, you know, pretend to be a brother. Um, and so for women, this is, again, they're they're doing a range of different kinds of work to essentially get access to these loans. Um and and I think that's something that's not sort of easily recognizable until you start to sort of see how it fits into women's everyday lives, that it's really become, on the one hand, very mundane. On the other hand, when you add it into a woman's everyday routine, then there's just, you know, this many more things to do in the day that's um, not, not understood to be labor, but actually is sort of a, a deep kind of labor. And I think the other point is, again, to go back to the idea that these loans are, you know, meant for for women to sort of start small businesses and become empowered by these these loans. Um, on the other hand, they, you know, for a lot of women, they're, they're consumption loans. They're things you need to sort of make ends meet. Um, but often to sort of I lead something that sort of maps onto more middle class kind of life and I think that the sort of aspirational quality that people have um, that women wanted so that they could sort of buy something during their festival season for their kids or to send their kids to a private school, um, that these were also um, things that sort of didn't fit readily with the the main literature on sort of what microfinance is supposed to do in terms of empowerment. Um, and yet women were sort of finding ways to use these to sort of, map onto a kind of a good life that they desired. And I think it's important to understand how this, you know, version of, of a good life is understood by borrowers and what they can sort of get out of the loan. So I think, I mean, part of trying to understand that is also also to sort of not fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, um, microfinance is just seen as bad by by the borrowers, that they they desire them for a certain reason. It's not the reason that, you know, uh, we think of from sort of the developmental side, but that they they want it because it helps them aspire to to certain other kinds of um, goods and um, things that that you know that they they feel like they need to sort of um, lead a better life for themselves for their children. Um, and so I think that part of recognizing women's agency to actually be able to use the loans to ends that they they desire is something to worth sort of um, thinking about.
1: Definitely. Um, I just have a question also that I'm curious about. So the cover of the book is um, uh, sort of a set of women who are, you know, in motion. Um, I wasn't sure if it's a microfinance context or something else. Could you sort of describe the cover a bit and then talk about why you chose this as the cover and what is happening?
0: um uh, actually the cover is part of the design from the the university press so it's not actually a picture for my my own field work although there are some that are from my my field site inside um so the the cover choice was somewhat <laughs> beyond my my own um control um, but one thing I did like about it was that there's a sort of group of women and there's a young child in the picture um and I think it, that part does map on to sort of how I experienced a lot of these group meetings in which it was sort of surrounded by um, quite often the group, you know, the group meetings are taking place in people's houses. They're, they're surrounded by their kin, their kids, their elderly um, family members, husbands, and that, um, you know, it's not these sort of, spaces of just these women sort of sitting around and talking, but they really are spaces of sort of the the wider sociality of the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, um, that's that's definitely a way to, you know, break the um, image of sort of the individual entrepreneurial borrower by um, showing this kind of space of sociality um, that microfinance ends up becoming. Um, So in the final chapter of the book, you discuss how microfinance institutions have turned to life insurance um, in order to mitigate the risk posed by high mortality rates amongst poor borrowers. Um, and you um, analyze this as a way of collateralizing life itself. So could you say a bit more about what that means and um, you know how life insurance is a risk management tool in this context?
0: Sure. Um, so one of the things I learned as I very early on learned was that uh, when people get a borrowers in this context get a, a microfinance loan, um, they pay a small fee um, that is for life insurance, and this life insurance covers the borrower and her guarantor in case either of them um, pass away in the in the period of that the one year period of the loan, um, and the This has become quite widespread amongst microfinance institutions in India now um, and is done increasingly um, or I'd say primarily now by life insurance companies selling microfinance institutions um, group insurance. So it's a model of selling group insurance to MFIs that then sort of pass those feeds down to, to their borrowers. Um, and so it is drawing in not now, not just sort of banks in terms of lending to, to poor households, but also this entire insurance sector um, that by way of these microfinance loans now, you know, all of these women actually own this uh, small life insurance policy. Um, and What's interesting about it is that on the one hand, um, again, there's a desire on the side of borrowers to seek out loans that have life insurance because they see it as a way of protecting their families um, that it you know there's there's sort of benefit of having um, life insurance cover that means that you know their family's not going to be responsible for repaying the loan um, at the same time, I was wondering why MFI's is push so much to have this um, this insurance, um, life insurance. And the, the MFI that I did most of my research with, they were in the process of actually transitioning from having an in-house life insurance policy to having sort of one that was, they were buying a group insurance from another one. Um, but by and large, um, what they were interested, what I was finding was that, um, the, there was a shift in the way that, collateral was understood in microfinance Um, and to say that is that initially the idea of having a group was that the group would collateralize the loan so the sort of going back to Muhammad Yunus's idea for the Grameen Bank that the poor lack material collateral so if people can back each other then you produce this kind of social collateral which will sort of back the loan Um, Increasingly, however, especially in India with the commercial sector, there's this push for sort of expansion Um, and to have this expansion means you can't really create these tight networks between um, borrowers who will definitely sort of guarantee each other's loans. Um, And so there's a need to. And in the case of Dena, the the MFI that I was working with, they they had even moved on from the, the sort of joint liability groups. They had something that was known as individual liability method, which meant that they actually didn't even rely on the group to be collateral for the, the loans. Um, and And yet you can't really have this kind of lending without any kind of collateral. So in that sense, I started to see the work that life insurance was doing, which was that it was serving as a kind of collateral to the poor, because on the one hand, the the poor borrowers seem to sort of, one of the arguments has been that they um, you know, have high rates of repayment. And often, again, it's argued that this is because of the, the, uh, the kind of social collateral. But actually often, um, and this has also been proven by various kinds of studies, that people are repaying because they need to constantly get loans. So you repay because you can get another loan within a year. Um, and that's one of the primary incentives to to have these high, very high repayment rates in microfinance. Um, so the question is, at which point do the poor actually stop paying back? And unfortunately, that's caught quite often with mortality. So um, the the thing that they were collateralizing against was that uh, you know someone would stop paying back because um, they were no longer alive, and that was really the point at which they would have to recover a loan because. Um, Many of the borrowers were, you know, constantly just trying to make sure that they paid back these loans so that they could get the next loan. Um, that wasn't sort of what was stopping high repayments. The repayments were really stopping with um, t- with death. And you know, I had a in an interview with a, a senior officer at one of these MFIs. He was quite explicit. He was a when you know when they had first implemented life insurance. He was surprised at the number of claims that came in because he didn't think that was, you know. True and yet, given higher mortality rates um, among poor populations, that you know did pan out. And so he was sort of defending the use of life insurance because um, you know it, it's this financial technique to be able to manage this risk. And he identified this um, life insurance as this kind of tool of managing risk. So I think there is recognition on the part of MFIs that that's what they're doing with the life insurance, um, but you know, that has some quite problematic sort of aspects. On the one hand, it is desirable for borrowers who want to sort of protect their families. Um, On the other hand, it makes, um, you know, in some cases, poor borrowers, that if they're ill, they're actually, you know, seen as being higher risk than if they are dead, because if they're dead, they can be claimed on by life insurance if you're ill and unable to pay back a loan, um, and you have to defer it somehow. Then you're a, you're a higher risk. So it actually produces a very sort of um, problematic understanding of sort of precarious lives. Um, because if your you know your death is valued higher than than your life, then that's quite a um,
1: problematic sort of space for 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 borrowers to be in. Thank you so much for discussing and for writing this powerful and really important book. Um, It really should be widely read and the insights taken up. Um, Before we end, could you tell us what are you currently working on?
0: Um, So I have, uh, I've been working on some projects that are finishing off, um, in, in some sense, this broader project on financial inclusion Uh, So, I've been looking a little bit at the way in which India's financial inclusion program, the um, Jandhan, um, these have been integrated with social policies, Um, so for example, the cooking gas um, subsidy and um, other kinds of um, welfare, so um, insurance for, for the poor, that these have all been rolled into the program for financial inclusion. Um, So I've been looking at what that means um, from the the perspective of of the institutions that are doing it, that are being called by the government to become part of sort of provisions of of social welfare. Um, So I have been doing some work uh, on that end. And I'm also starting a project of looking at um, how... There's increasingly new kinds of actors um, in the field of finance, which are activists and the ways in which different kinds of activists shape um, financial outcomes in terms of divestment movements, in terms of social investments, um, as well as the ways in which banks and financial institutions have increasingly become activists so that we see the sort of dual um, move in terms of what I see as sort of financial activists and activist banks and what that means um, in terms of this sort of financialized um, world where we now see finance as a center for, for new kinds of activism. So that's sort of the, the bigger project that I'm, I'm working towards and, and thinking about how to sort of ground that ethnographically and um, think about the sites in which we can sort of recognize these practices.
1: That sounds really fascinating, and um, I, you know, I hope to read a uh, next book in the coming few years. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Professor Carr. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you to all the listeners who joined us today. Until next time, bye-bye.